Well, hey, welcome back, everybody, to the Wit and Whiskey Cast. I'm your host, DJ Gagnon, along with my Romulus to my Remus, Mark Rossetti. That's not going to end well, but away, Roma Invicta. <laughs> and uh, we just, uh, you know, we, we want to just settle in here. I'm going to be learning a lot this week and next week and probably the week after and maybe even the week after, depending <laughs> on how long Mark decides to go. Uh, but before we get to this glorious and long-running topic, uh, how, how you been, buddy? Uh, you know, hey, it's it's been uh, a weekend. It's, it snows every 15 or 20 minutes or so. But it's like, you know, too cold to snow, which I know is not actually like a science-y thing. But, you know, it's single digits without the wind chill and uh, kind of below zero with the wind chill. So it just snows for a little bit doesn't really stick to anything and then just freezes. So there's just layers and layers of ice on everything, which is uh, not fun. Also, uh, ground zero for the world ending is going to be right here. No. There was, there was a uh, charger trailer accident on Thursday night or Friday morning. We're not exactly sure when, where a truck jackknifed and spilled its cargo all over the highway. The problem was its cargo was uh close to a hundred live monkeys five of which escaped from authorities and there was this massive manhunt and no one really was sure why because at first it was kind of like a big joke about like jumanji and you know monkeys running wild in the cold uh, of pennsylvania but no apparently they were test animals for the cdc so as soon as the pa state police rounded them up they were all euthanized immediately and now everyone that's had any contact with them is under supervised quarantine and the government won't say why. So it's kind of fun watching the 11 o'clock news around here as people go ballistic. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, so if the world ends, uh, I guess it's our fault. Sorry. <laughs> How about you, buddy? Can we, can we not have animals releasing yet more plagues for fuck's sake? Well, I'll go one step further. Can we not have the government putting more plagues into animals? <clears throat> is that too much to ask? Well, yeah, yeah, that's that would be good too, I guess. Uh, I don't know. It's been uh, it's been a pretty good week. Um, no D and D this week, which was you know pouty. That was sad. It was. Um, but no, things are good. Uh, I I think I think I might be in the clear at work. We my team uh, rallied this week, and I think we crossed the last couple of findings for for my products at least off the list so uh i i think i saved the world mark uh and more appropriately well, I think somebody my, has to my team did I, I can't claim the credit my hands were not on those keyboards but other than that somebody um, has to i uh, uh i i found a new uh semi-trash book series to read that i'm very very happy about it's just it's basically uh like American isekai. So it's called lit RPG. It's its own little genre. And it's basically, you know, got, got trapped in a video game slash fantasy world, but I have all of my knowledge from the real world and I shall use it. Um, so like every ninth grade AV club kids dreams. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, it's very good. Um, and, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm tentative to say that it's, it's good. I think it's good, but I want to get a few more books out there before I actually tell people what I'm reading. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's other than that, it's been a pretty good week. 
Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. This question always stumps me. It does. I mean, we're only 73 episodes in. I don't know why you'd have an answer yet, but hey. hey you know, I'm it. aiming for episode 100. All right. We'll make it a whole segment for episode 100. Okay, that sounds good. What are you, uh, what are you drinking, buddy? Well, I was trying to get into the theme a little bit, and, you know, Rome is well known for their wine, uh, such as, you know, to the extent if you read uh, seven, the history of the world uh, taught through seven glasses, the entire section on Rome and Greece is just about wine. So, but this is a whiskey podcast, and I'm not a big wine guy, so that led me to the inevitable, yeah. the New York Sour. And these are actually really good. I hadn't had one until today, but I, I was intrigued when I was reading about it, and I really like it. So, you have two shots of your preferred rye whiskey, which I went with Old Faithful, the Wild Turkey 101. One ounce of fresh lemon juice, one ounce of simple syrup. Throw all of that with some ice into a cocktail shaker. Shake the fuck out of it till it gets good and frosty. Mm. Uh, you're going to strain it into a rocks glass, and they tell you to use crushed ice. I just use one of my big old whiskey ice cubes because I'm not a big ice guy. And once you have all that in there, you go and you get uh, half an ounce to three quarters of an ounce of red wine. Ooh. And then you pour it over the back of a spoon so it layers. And this is actually really good. I love a good uh, layered drink. They're just so much fun. It was so much fun. Uh, I was actually able to do it. I don't have the best uh, history with layered drinks because I don't have the patience, especially for a good pour over a spoon. So, uh, you know, it didn't – usually it doesn't really work, but I got, I got a good layer on the top. I think next time I do it, I'm going to use a little bit more wine just to make the layer a little bit thicker. I mean, it still look good, but it, I think I can improve it. On the nose, obviously, since it's on top, you get the wine, you get the fruit. It blends perfectly into the lemon, and then the last thing you hit is uh, your rye. And even though it's Wild Turkey 101, since you have the simple syrup and you have the sugar from the wine, it burns, but it doesn't burn anywhere near. So it's uh, fruity, it's smooth, and at its heart, it's still two parts 100-proof rye. So <laughs> I recommend it. I'm going to keep playing with it. The wife liked it, although she's like, if I have more than one of these, I'll be dead. It's <laughs> probably true. Uh, so play around with it at home, folks. I mean, there's different variations depending on what kind of wines you want to use and whether or not you want to use bourbon versus rye. You could play with that as well. But 10 out of 10 would drink again. That's amazing. What about you? Are you also sour this evening? I am very sour this evening. <laughs> uh, so We didn't actually plan this, folks. No. It, it, you'd be astounded at how little we actually plan for this podcast. Well, if they've listened to all 72 episodes, I don't think they'll be astounded. It's fair. I mean, to be fair, Mark did do a fuck ton of prep for this episode. Um, but I've been I, reading a lot this week. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. Uh, I went... Uh, down the sour route as well. Uh, but I uh, eschewed our brown liquor of choice in favor of Pisco. Uh, so I went with a Pisco sour 
this week. And uh, I really like Pisco Sours because it was my introduction to egg white drinks. And I love egg white drinks. You do love a good egg white drink. They're so good. And once you get past the initial uh, factor, um, man, your, your, your cocktail palate just opens wide. So uh, a, a, a decent Pisco Sour. And I did get this recipe from a cocktail class that I actually took. Um, on Masterclass, uh, of all places. Uh, have you ever done anything on Masterclass? Uh, not recently, but I was playing around with it a little bit pretty much before the world ended. That's fair. I, I Right at the beginning of 2020, when we went into quarantine, I was like, I want to learn bartending. So I signed up for this class. It's uh, You can find it on Masterclass. It's, uh, it's called Teach Mixology. Um, I, if you've never made a drink before, I'd recommend starting elsewhere first. Um, but the instructors are, uh, Lynette, uh, Lynette Marrero and Ryan Chadia Wagner, and they, uh, they, they teach an amazing class and they've got all the videos and then they have the class guide and I reference the class guide at least once a week still. Um, but a Pisco Sour, it's, uh, an ounce of simple syrup, a half ounce each of lemon and lime juice, uh, one egg white two ounces of Pisco. Uh, and in case you didn't know, Pisco is a, uh, brandy, um, usually made in Peru or Chile. Uh, and it's very good. (laughs) I highly recommend it. It's usually clear to like light amber colored. Um, you can check the brand, uh, that I, I did this week. Uh, when we post the Instagram, I don't remember the name of it right now. Uh, Barsol, Barsol, I think Barsol Pisco. Um, so you, the Piscos are really cool. This is like a very tiny tools of the trade. Um, but when you do a Pisco sour, you put everything in and you shake it up, but you dry shake it with egg white drinks. You dry shake it first, uh, because the citrus, and the egg white in there uh, at at room temperature basically are it, you're getting it you're getting the citrus to basically kind of froth and cook the egg white, uh, which is why egg white drinks are pretty safe to drink. But you know I don't yell at us if you get sick. Uh, you know yeah. drink it drink at your own risk. Um, and then when you when you're done dry shaking, you crack the shaker, you pour in a bunch of ice cubes, then you shake to to chill. Uh, pu- uh, strain it into your glass. Uh, I did a coupe glass, of course, because they're my favorite. Uh, and then you throw uh, two to three dashes of an aromatic bitters over the top of it, and you're done. And the drink is really frothy, and it's got this kind of uh, opaque amber color, uh, and it tastes super, super good. Definitely try it out. Um, I-, I know I've mentioned this. I think I mentioned it in season one, but I'm going to mention it again here. If the idea of an egg white drink uh, makes you feel ick, uh, that's totally fine. You can get the same exact um, palate and mouthfeel from aquafaba, which is the, uh, the juice that chickpeas are packed in. So Random, but okay. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, I, I didn't realize this until I took this cocktail class, and it's actually really interesting. You can make uh, meringues with aquafaba. You can do some really cool things with aquafaba, and it's literally uh, two tablespoons of aquafaba uh, to one egg white. That's your conversion rate. So, you know, this would 
it, this would have been two tablespoons of aquafaba, and it froths up and tastes basically the same as an egg white does. So uh, if you are ever not sure uh, and you have any access to canned chickpeas, you've, you, you know, you're, you can make all of these really cool egg white drinks. Definitely recommend it. Well, I can't uh, argue with any of that. I enjoy a good egg white drink as much as, uh, no, I was going to say as much as you, but that's a lie. Nobody enjoys it as much as you. <laughs> but I, I enjoy a good egg white drink, but I understand if you could be a little squicked out. And now I have a new reason to buy chickpeas. So, hey, we Did learned you? something. That you, you're blending, you are blending your reviews with tools of the trade here. I am. I like this. I am. I, I did what I could. I That's probably going to happen in the next few weeks. I'll try to come up with cool cocktail techniques. But yeah, I definitely recommend. I I feel like you can probably buy aquafaba in bulk now um, just because it's become such an egg substitute for people with egg allergies. Um, you know, something to think about. Uh, you know, I, I, have a, I have a nephew who is... Um, uh, he is allergic to lots of things, and eggs is one of them. So uh, his, his mom uses aquafaba for some stuff. Well, there you go. Take us into whiskey news, buddy. What you got? <laughs> the Canadians, bless them. Uh, they're, they're a country above us. Uh, Robin Williams once described them as a loft apartment above a really great party. Well, the Canadians have uh, announced the best whiskeys of the year. They had the Canadian Whiskey Awards. I don't. I'm assuming these are for 2021 because the event was uh, three days ago as we record this. The event was on January 20th. So if you're not even three weeks into a year and you're naming the best whiskeys of the year, we have a problem. Yeah. So I'm assuming these are for 2021, but uh, it doesn't say. But they had the 12th annual Canadian Whiskey Awards, and uh, a Crown Royal blend has won it. More specifically, the Crown Royal Noble Collection Winter Wheat is both Canada's best whiskey and the Canadian Whiskey of the Year. Uh, more than 150 Canadian whiskeys were tasted for the awards. Uh, and not only that, but uh, Crown Royal as a brand also took top awards for best blended whiskey and best sippin' whiskey. Mm. which I think is kind of fun. Uh, Davin de Cramogue, he's not French-Canadian or anything, who was the head judge or founder of the award, said in a prepared statement that the uh, winning, winner, eh, winning winter wheat, easy for me to say, is a truly stunning whiskey, an incredibly complex, flavorful, and very well-balanced uh, Pendleton's Director's Reserve 20-year-old was named the Connoisseur Whiskey of the Year. Go figure. Uh, J.P. Weiser's Red Letter 15-year-old was named Connoisseur Whiskey of the Year for Canadian exclusives. They gotta have their own award. Uh, as well as the Best Line Extension, uh, Royal Canadian Small Batch. Oh, this, this says 2022, so apparently three weeks in they know what the best whiskeys are already. Because Royal Canadian Small Batch is 2022's Sippin' Whiskey of the Year export exclusive. Mm. Yeah, so we'll have to look for that. Uh, Black Velvet Original, good old-fashioned Black Velvet won Best Value Whiskey. Canadian Club 100% Rye won Best... So they have Best 
Oh, okay. This is the same the same thing, but in different categories. Black Velvet Original was Best Value Whiskey for Exports. Canadian Club 100% Rye was Best Value Whiskey Overall. Uh, and then the final one, the single malt of the year was Smoke Point Number 3 from the Shelter Point Distillery. So uh, there you have it. Uh, the judges' results are confirmed every day on liquor store shelves across North America and the world, says Mr. Davin. So uh, thank you, Canada, for, you know, waiting a whole 20 days into the year to hand <laughs> out awards. So that's whiskey news. What about tools of the trade? <laughs> I just got egg up my nose. <laughs> I just, well, I, I only, you know, I found the thing and I had only skimmed some of the ca- uh, categories uh, this week and I did not notice any years on any of them. So I was like, oh, well, okay, it's just the year end of awards. They're just doing it a few weeks later. No, they're for this year. Okay. <laughs> Ridiculous. Uh, well, I thought I would talk a little bit about batch cocktails. You know, we're talking about the Roman Empire. The Romans drank a lot of wine uh, and wine made me think of sangria. Right, uh, mm. I, I love a good sangria. I, Mark seems to enjoy a good sangria. I, I, well, I'm, I, yeah, it's it's kind of a requirement if you're from anywhere in the Mediterranean. But keep going. Yeah, fair. Uh, so I thought I'd do a little bit of research today on um, doing batch cocktails and what things to uh, look out for. Uh, because if you're making a fresh cocktail, you're making one or two. Uh, you're shaking it in front of your guests. You know that's a different experience than if you are putting it into a pitcher, putting it into a vacuum, you know, hydro flask thing, or uh, you know, bringing it in a thermos uh, to the track. You know, uh, which I'm sure Mark has done many a time. Uh, uh, well, I'm retired now, so I can see. I was gonna say officially no, but I'm retired now. It doesn't fucking matter. Yeah, all the goddamn time. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I, I actually thought it was really interesting. I did some research earlier this week, and I did some today, and I found some interesting things that um, would be a good thing to look out for. And uh, I think it's it, it's an interesting... Every time I've had something where someone's brought a cocktail that wasn't a sangria from home and brought it out and shared it with people, it's always been really strong. And I'm like, why is it always super strong? When I make a margarita at home, it doesn't taste like this. And it doesn't set my head spinning. So uh, the the big tip that I found was don't forget about water. And it sounds silly. Uh, but most cocktails, you know, whether it's an old-fashioned, whether it's a daiquiri, whether it's, you know, a margarita, uh, they, they're mostly shaken. Uh, and when you shake, it introduces water into your cocktail, waters it down and balances it out just enough. Um, and when you make kind of a batch cocktail, you know, you make a huge, let's say you make a pitcher of old fashions, uh, you'll put the simple syrup in there. You'll put, you know, some water and some sugar in there like you're supposed to. And, but you're not going to shake it. Cocktail shakers are tiny. You know, that's not a pitcher of, of liquor. So you're probably going to stir it up and then maybe chill it in the fridge overnight or maybe even the freezer because that's a high-proof liquor and you can get away with it. Um, and then you're going to pour it the next day and you're going to knock people on their ass because, <laughs> holy fuck, that whiskey's already strong and you didn't, you didn't shake it. You maybe didn't serve it over ice. You didn't let it mellow. Um, 
So there's some really interesting ways you can go about this. And I'm going to save the calculations for a future tools of the trade. But there's a couple different ways you can do it. You can, uh, the, like the morning that you're going to bring the cocktail out, let's say you make it the night before, you get out the pitcher that morning, throw a bunch of ice in it, um, maybe throw it in like a vacuum sealed thermosy thing so that the ice doesn't melt too quickly, bring it to where you're going. You could also uh, individually shake e- each of them uh, as you go. That might be time-consuming. Uh, you could serve your cocktail over ice. Uh, you could pick a cocktail that doesn't necessarily need to worry about this, which is why sangria or party punches are kind of perfect for this example because you're going to dilute it with the ingredients that you put in anyways. The other side of it is uh, you can calculate how much water to add to your cocktail, and then you don't need to worry about putting ice in it at all. You can just, you know, you'll have the perfect uh, ratios that you need. Uh, we'll, we'll get into that later, uh, maybe in a different episode. But uh, things that you could do the night before, um, it, if it's something that's got a gin, vodka, tequila, whiskey base, uh, you can generally put them in the freezer. If you make a big batch of cocktails, you want to chill it quickly, you can put them in the freezer. I'd recommend making it the night before and putting the pitcher in the fridge. Just let it slowly chill. Uh, that way you don't have to worry about it being you know, too cold when you're transporting it. And you don't have to worry about, oh, is this the right temperature? And You don't have to worry about it. Just put it in the fridge overnight. Um, but generally, if you are going to be using fresh ingredients, something like a sangria or uh i mean even something as simple as like a batch of you know tom collins or or um, mojitos uh squeeze the citrus juice the next morning if you're going to do something like that um you know especially for for anything that uses you know fresh citrus juice if you're not using sour mix i just squeeze it the next morning you you can get a bunch of stuff done uh the previous night and then the next morning you can squeeze your your juice in it'll taste a little bit better uh with some herbs if you're going to make something like a batch of mojitos it might be worth just making it the morning of before you bring it over so that you're not leaving mint overnight uh anybody that's done like mint infusions knows that if you leave mint in there too long it's that's all you're going to taste yeah uh and then if if you're going to do some some interesting things where maybe you're going to put part of the cocktail in a big jug and make some syrups and make some, you know, get some herbs that you package together. And maybe you're going to construct it when you get there. Make sure you label everything so you don't accidentally miss or spill or something like that. Um, And then when you get there, uh, something like a sangria is a really great example of like, you can just put that pitcher out and people can eat the fruit. They can drink the drink. It's, it's great. Um, you can also just individually pour. Uh, there's some really large vacuum thermoses that you can get these days. Um, you know, Hydroflask, Yeti, that they all have them. All of those crazy companies have uh, huge uh, thermos and, and you know, vacuum-sealed things. So you can just get a huge one and bring that with you. You can chill it in the thing, or you can pour it into that to keep it cold. Um and also, you know, make sure that you're obeying your open carry laws. Uh, if you're transporting a batch cocktail, maybe leave it in the trunk. Yeah, that's, they generally frown upon it anywhere else if they pull you over. Mm. But just some things to think about next time you, uh, ne- next time it's safe to go out and party with batch cocktails. 
important top tip there, and hopefully that time will be sooner rather than later. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping, you know, fall. That would be nice. Fall would be nice. But that brings us to our epic topic. This th- this might be our first four-parter. What do you think, Mark? Well, uh, you know, we're going to see uh I we're today we're going to we're going to take it somewhat fast and slow at the same time. We're we're only going to we're going to do this in stages, you know, uh Rome as we think of, you know, it's Everybody always says, oh, the Roman Empire, you know, well, ancient Rome has three really distinct phases. You have the monarchy, you have the Roman Republic, and then you have the Roman Empire. Uh, There's some earlier stuff, which we'll talk about a little bit, some myths, some uh, founding, some other city-states prior to the founding of the Roman monarchy. And then you have the really fun debate about when the Roman Empire actually ends, which we'll get into kind of next week, but uh, I think this week we're going to focus on the founding of Rome, the seven kings of Rome, and then the Roman Republic. We're just going to hit some of the high points here. DJ loves it when I plug other podcasts on here, but if you are interested (laughs) in this and all, and you want uh, to actually learn about this in depth, there's a fantastic podcast. It's really easy to remember. It's just the history of Rome. <laughs> uh, it's over 200 episodes strong, and it's not all the way through the history of Rome. So that'll give you some idea. Like what we're going to do in the next at least three weeks is – two or three weeks is uh, not even a 101. Like this is the spark notes of the cliff notes of etc. But we're going to go through because, you know, we generally only have 35 to 45 minutes for the topic part of our episode. (laughs) And we want to try to stick to that. So now I just want to put one thing in here before Mark goes down this long road and just (laughs) remind everybody that Caesar was a tyrant. All right. Go ahead, Mark. We're not even talking about him today. And actually, that's a great you know, you're winding me up. But that is a great segue. For the most part, we're going to be using the more. Uh anglicized pronunciations. I mean, I did actually graduate high school with the Latin award after four years. I don't want to brag, but it's just easier for speed reading, for speed writing to do the anglicized spellings, the anglicized pronunciations. Some of them will still break in some of the actual correct Latin pronunciations like Kaiser. No, I refuse. We'll, I'll probably chop and change so you could save your mean tweets. Uh, it is what it is. Yeah, I, I, I took French for three years. Uh, <laughs> it's Caesar. I had two years of French, two years of Italian, and four years of Latin. So, But as I said, we're just going to talk about the founding, uh, the empire. Or Yeah, I'm, I'm doing it now. The founding, the monarchy, the republic. Next week, we're going to talk about the triumvirates and the empire and the debate as to when it ends. And then I'm thinking maybe we'll do a more lighthearted third part on some of the more lasting things like, you know, the Latin language, Roman numerals, the Catholic Church, the the big shit that's still around today. So, all right, let's jump into it with uh, DJ's intro here, Romulus and Remus. (laughs) Now, uh, you know, you've heard me talk about him before. Romulus is my cat as well as, and of course, he is named after the 
ancient Romulus. Now, they were born on Alba Longa. We're going to talk about a lot of these places and city names. And you have to understand, before, well, before the Treaty of Westphalia in the Middle Ages and long before any of that, your major form of government, your nation, was just a city-state. You know, you would have these large cities that would form governments. They would conquer areas around them. And those were your nations. Those were your countries. That was you know, where your allegiance was to. You didn't have defined borders and kingdoms and nations until much later. It all centered on the thing. Even when Rome was at its height under Trajan, it was still Rome. Uh, that was still the capital. That was still what you identified as. So Alba Longa was an island, and it was another one of these city-states. Uh, that was where Romulus and Remus were born. Uh, their mother, Rhea Silvia, was a Vestal Virgin. What does that mean? And... Well, she was uh, one of the re priestly women, religious women, who was supposed to, you know, only be a virgin and dedicate herself to the gods and to uh, their their work. Sounds kind Romulus of would like have, the Virgin Mary. Uh, sort of. <laughs> You're going to notice as we go through, the Romans borrow a lot, and a lot gets borrowed from the Romans. They're bloody thieves. <laughs> so... Uh, Romulus would eventually bring the Vestal Virgins over to Rome proper later on. Uh, but in some accounting, uh, their, Romulus and Remus's brother was actually Mars, the Roman god of war, who came down and had an affair with Rhea Silvia, and Romulus and Remus were born. I particularly like this version because, again, you see a lot of uh, where Christianity borrowed it from, and likewise... Uh, Marco, Marcus, Mark is all derived from Mars. So, since I have a cat named Romulus, I think it's kind of fun that Mars is Romulus's dad. You're just shaking your head. I can hear you shaking just, your head on the other end. I mean, I I just I can't believe you're wrong so early in this. The 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 god of war was named Kratos. Oh, here we go. Okay. Bloody hell. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. We're, that's your part later. We'll get to that. And I can roll my eyes. I can shake my head and roll my eyes. You can. Uh, but, so, uh, King Abilius was out of, uh, the king of Alba Longa. He feared the twins, because here you have these two boys born of a virgin from a god, and they, he's like, they're going to come from my throne. They're going to take me, take it over. So he ordered them to be kidnapped and not outright murdered. He ordered them to be abandoned along the Tiber River. And when the Tiber floods, that will just do what waters do and take care of it. And hey, I didn't actually murder the kids. They were just by the river. And so it goes. However, the father of the river, Tiberius, Tiber Tiberius, <laughs> Tiberius, I can talk, saved the children by, since he was the father of the, the Tiber River, he made it flood so much that, according to legend, it picked them up and carried them downstream. Almost sounds like the Jewish uh, parable of Moses, doesn't it? Kind of similar. No basket, no mother dropping them off, but a similar concept. And they were deposited on one of the riverbanks on what was the future spot of Rome, and they were nursed by a she-wolf. And no matter how little you 
may know about Rome or think you know about Rome, I guarantee you, you have seen the famous artwork, the famous statue of the she-wolf nursing Romulus and Remus. It's reproduced constantly, even to this day. So uh, they were picked up by a local man and they were raised as orphan shepherds and they just became sort of sheep herders and never really knew who they were. Until years later, they got caught up between a civil war on Alba Longa between the king and their grandfather, Numitor, who was really the rightful ruler and should be on the throne. Uh, quickly, it is discovered slash revealed dramatically who Romulus and Remus actually are, who these orphan uh, shepherds are. They are tempted to be imprisoned and they escape and they come back and... They end up siding with their grandfather, of course, winning the Civil War, putting him back on the throne. And as part of a happy ending, they're going to return to the spot where they were nursed by the she-wolf. And they're going to found a glorious city to ally with the kingdom of Alvalonga. The problem was uh, Rome, of course, famously is built on seven hills, the city of Rome. And the brothers disagreed on which of the hills they wanted to found Roman originally. Sweet Jesus. <laughs> Romulus wanted Palpatine Hill. Remus wanted Aventine Hill. So they began to compete to achieve the favor of the gods. And legend says that as their actions were being performed, Remus had six birds appear before him and land next to him, where Romulus had 12 and this supposedly, according to legend, was proof that the gods favored Romulus over Remus. Remus was not happy with this and decided that they needed to keep going with the competition because he surely would be able to sway the gods to his favor. Romulus did the only sane thing and killed him. Jesus. <laughs> Just murdered his brother outright. Why is there so uh, much patri <laughs> patricide? Fratricide? Fratricide. You there were right we the first time. <laughs> Hey, uh, some accounts say it was the followers of Romulus. Um, again, you could see where the Cain and Abel storyline kind of comes from. There's a lot. There's a lot there. Uh, I like to think Romulus uh, killed his brother. It makes a good meme, if nothing else. <laughs> he then then declared himself the first king of Rome, or Rex in Latin. R e x Rex is king. Now, the Romans loved keeping track of their own history. There are literally hundreds of history books written by Rome, Romans, about the Roman Empire, about the founding, about the history. And those are just like the good ones that, you know, have some credibility. There's literally thousands of them that were written during the time, but there's probably 100 to 200 of them that you should at least check out. And for the most <laughs> part, they, they claim... <laughs> A bit of light reading, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Most of them only have like 20 volumes. Don't worry about it. Uh, most Jesus. of these sources claim that Rome was founded around 753 BCE. Uh, but the earliest accountings of the story of Romulus and Remus don't appear until the mid 300s BCE. So we're not really sure, we being modern historians, how these stories evolved, how they came to be put together. But by about 350 BCE, 340 BCE, the story of Romulus and Remus was pretty much accepted gospel uh, for the founding of Rome. So that puts the founding of Rome and thus the Roman monarchy at 753 BCE, which takes us to the fabled seven kings of Rome or the uh, monarchy of Rome. Which is this, lasted from. Is this because there's seven hills? 
No, it just kind of worked out. See, well, well, we'll we'll talk about the numerology in a minute. <laughs> the it lasted from 753 BCE to 509 BCE, so 240 years, give or take, a little bit less. And the most of this is obviously legend. Most of these kings, you know, to have seven kings lasting roughly 240 years and to know their precise dates of reign and how they came to be. No, a lot of this is legend. A lot of this is mythology. A lot of this is the Romans later on attributing things that happened in their history to, you know, a figure. Rome did have a monarchy. Rome did have a period where it was led by kings. It more than likely was a lot more than seven kings with very neat start and end dates. There probably were dates of, uh, you know, times when there was disputes over the throne. There probably was times of multiple kings. So take a lot of this with a grain of salt. Most of what happened during this time, almost all of what happened during this time, did actually happen. Who the leader was then, who it's attributed to, a lot of that is myth. That being said, we do now believe today that at the very least, the last three and possibly the last four actually did exist. But just because they existed didn't doesn't mean they existed when they claimed to existed and ruled when they claimed to existed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you can be both a his, historical figure and a mythological figure. I mean, uh, look at Jesus. Jesus actually was, there was a historical Jesus. And it's kind of a different person than the religious Jesus. Mm-hmm. So just keep all this with a grain of salt. <clears throat> But Romulus is the first king of Rome, the founder of Rome. He created the Senate. He was also the organizer of the rape of the Sabine women. Now, Jesus. before you say anything, now, before you say anything, this is not what you think it is. This is because in the historical accounts, they use the Latin word raptio, which translates to rape in English. However... When you study the accounts and you study the incident, it really was more of a mass abduction than it was of rape. <laughs> I mean, there was probably a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B, huh? There was, but it wasn't all at once, and it wasn't on the scale as it is. Well, this is another one that we don't know exactly what happened. The long and the short of it is Romulus was leading a kingdom of runaway slaves ex-cons and AWOL soldiers. Jesus. The land of misfit toys, or Australia, if you prefer. Yeah. The, <laughs> the, uh, but the biggest problem was it was overwhelmingly male. It was a sausage party. And he looked over at the kingdom of Sabine next door and said, you got a lot of women. So they organized a religious festival and they invited... Everyone from the kingdom, the neighboring city stayed over. And in the middle of it, they just stopped it and surrounded the place with guards and said, oh, your women are our women now. (laughs) Now, this did not go over well with the kingdom of Sabine, as you might imagine. And it led to a war. And as the legend states, in the middle of the bloody conflict, all of the Sabine women said, stop fighting. You're our old home. Rome is our new home. We're going to unite. 
and this the war ended and the two kingdoms merged together, although they were officially under the uh, species of Rome. Uh, but Romulus actually had a co-king for about five years. The, the Sabine throne was supposed to be equal to the Roman throne. And when the other guy died, Romulus is like, I'm the fucking king now. This sounds <laughs> and, a lot like the NFL and the AFL combining. Uh, kind of. <laughs> Only the AFL, like, still existed after the, sort of, like the teams and everything still existed. Sabine ended up just getting folded in. <laughs> Uh, according to legend, Romulus was actually taken away by Mars himself in a flaming chariot. This one I like because this legend is so bullshit, not even the Romans believed it. <laughs> the actuality is, we believe, by the end of his reign, Romulus was very unpopular. And he was murdered. Of course he but, was. But uh, not wanting the legendary founder of one of the greatest empires in the history of history, the Romans just said, ah, Mars came and took him. You know, he's, he's the son of Mars. His dad just came down and took him up, took him away. But he was, he was killed. <laughs> There's a lot of murder of tyrants in, in this story, isn't there? Oh, we're, we're just getting started, brother. <laughs> so that led to Numa Pompilus from 716 to 673 BCE. This guy now, sounds promising. Well, interestingly enough, he was Romulus's brother-in-law. Because remember, Romulus killed his brother. <laughs> so he was brother-in-law. And what did that make him? That made him a Sabine. Because Romulus, uh, during the rape of the Sabine women, Romulus took a Sabine woman for his wife. So his brother, who was a Sabine, became king. And he became king because the people of Sabine said, Hey, you kind of like took us over and took all our women and have been ruling us. We're not going to stay with you unless we can have a king. Hmm. So this was the compromise. The, everyone agreed with this idea except for Numa Pompilus. He did not want the job at all. I mean, that's kind of the guy you want as your king, though, right? <laughs> uh, to an extent, he was a man of culture. He was not a warrior. He was a very pious man. He was a very religious man. He created the priestly class. And a lot of the roles that the priests uh, were necessary for. We talked about this during our New Year's episode, the concept of time. Mm -hmm. He also came up with the first reformed calendar before the Julian calendar. He did all that. So go back to our New Year's episode when we go into more detail about that. But that was all in this time from 716 to 673. Uh, after he died, that led to Tolus Hostilis, uh, 673 to 642 BCE. He was the destroyer of Alba Longa, just leveled the fucking place. Jesus. Conquered numerous tribes. Uh, he was the total opposite of poor Numa. He was uh, fight first, fight second, fight third. And according to legend, he angered the gods and was struck by a plague himself and brought a plague upon all of Rome. He then uh, tried to repent near the end of his life and was regularly uh, making sacrifices to the gods. He stopped warring. He made peace treaties. And uh, according to legend, the gods were still pissed off, so he got struck by lightning and killed out in public. So he was probably murdered. This one we're not as sure of, but take it with a grain of salt. Again, you can see where the legends come in with some of the stories here. Yeah. <laughs> Ancus Marcissus was next, uh, 642 to 616. He was named king at just five years of age. 
And he was actually Numa Pompilus' grandson. So the fourth king was the grandson of the second king. I'm sorry, just read ahead. <laughs> what? It's the last line in this section. All right, just keep going. All right. Um, he was... He was a uniter. He was a peacemaker. He wanted to uh, basically calm all of the really pissed off tribes and city states that were surrounding Rome that Tullus had angered. Uh, that being said, he did conquer a lot of the old Latins. He did fight the Latin League, which was a, a group of you know, allied city states and tribes. Uh, and he most likely existed. <laughs> That's the part that, that got me. Is that what popped you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's one that there is strong evidence probably actually was a person that existed. Whether or not he did shit, we were not entirely sure. But not struck by lightning or murdered? No. That's good. He, he died of natural causes and then his kids got fucked. Because the next king, Lucius Tarquinius Prisces, or uh, Tarquin the Elder... He was an Etruscan. He outmaneuvered Ancestors' sons to the throne. He was, he was a forwarder. He was an Etruscan. He came in and became an advisor uh, to, to uh, Ancestors' sons and the king himself. And then when he died, he said, hey, go, why don't you, you know, go grieve, uh, go make sacrifices at the temple, go hunting. I'm going to arrange all your father's funerals and the official time of mourning and everything. And when they came back, they found out that, hey, Tarquin's on the throne now. <laughs> because the Roman Empire, the Roman monarchy was not hereditary. And we'll talk a little bit more about this when we talk about the Republic. Uh, you were beholden to the Senate and the people of Rome, not to any bloodline or godly lineage. So they came back and he's like, I'm the fucking god now. And to uh, legitimize his... Uh, power. He added a hundred Etruscans as lesser nobles, quote unquote, to the Senate. So now he had backup in the Senate. He was the first person to have widespread circus games in Rome to keep the people happy. You know, the classic bread and circuses uh, rule of government of Rome. He's also credited with starting construction of the great temple of Jupiter, although there is some debate as to whether or not he was in charge when it began. And eventually the prior king's sons got a hold of some assassins and they went and they murdered old Tarquin. They buried a hatchet in the back of his head. Mm. However, he was still alive when the assassins ran off. It was a very public attempt, but he was still alive and he very quickly was uh, shuttered away to the palace. And he was hanging on and fighting for his life for years and years. In actuality, he died almost immediately and his wife ruled in secret. And she ruled in secret until their son was ready, uh, Servius Tullus. And once he was finally ready, then all of a sudden, hey, Tarquin's dead, and boom, his son's going to be there now. Nice. And he took over in 579 BCE. He has numerous firsts attributed to him. There's no way that so many firsts could all happen under the reign of one person. This is why... Uh, many modern historians think even if a lot of these people existed, they're just getting attributed things because the Romans didn't actually know the history. So, ah, Servius did this. <laughs> uh, the census, uh, the breakage of classes, the modern walling around Rome, all attributed to him. The first coinage attributed to him because the early Roman monarchy was a barter system. A head of cattle was a, a unit of uh, currency for a long time. 
He was actually overthrown by his own daughter and by Tarquin the Proud. Uh, Servius's murder is wild. Basically, by the end, people were very angry with him. They're, they were kind of bored. The Senate said, we need to overthrow him. So his son-in-law just showed up in the Senate in royal robes and said, make me emperor. And the Senate said, cool, you're emperor. And so Servius ran down, or king rather. And so Servius ran down and said, no, I'm actually the king. And they're like, no, we have this new guy now. And then they attacked him and they killed him. <laughs> and then the, the, the final straw was his daughter rode a horse and uh, chariot in and ran over his body on her way to her husband, who was the new king. And that brings us to the final king of Rome, Lucius Tarquinius Superbus, or Tarquin the Proud, who ruled from 534 to 509 BCE. Because of the just frankly fucking insane way he took power, he had absolutely no legitimacy. Yeah. <laughs> he was mocked. He was laughed at. Nobody liked him. So because of that, he ruled as a tyrant. He was, uh, I hesitate to say a dictator because we're going to talk about the origin of dictator in a minute. But if you disagreed with him, he simply arrested you, threw you in jail, or had you executed. But more importantly, seized all of your wealth and possessions. He also loved war. He loved to fight. So he was constantly out campaigning against the tribes on the Italian peninsula. And what's one thing we all know about war? It's very fucking expensive. Yes. So uh, they, he needed money to keep his campaigns going. So eventually he just began arresting the wealthy just so he could steal their money. Jesus. Uh, in 510 BCE, after his son committed a very public rape that led to a suicide, the populace finally had enough and turned against him. Uh, of course, he was away campaigning and came back to find Rome basically in the hands of an angry mob. And a year later, when the army finally turned against him, he was executed and the monarchy was over, leading to the declaration of the Roman Republic. So the Roman Republic, let's talk about the construction of it, because this is the most important part. The kings were at least officially elected by the Senate, with the exception of Romulus. Basically, a king would die and a senator would be nominated by the Senate at large to spend five days to a week to come up with a nomination for king. And then if he couldn't do it, someone else would and et cetera. And then when they had a nomination, the Senate would vote at large, kind of sort of the way they still elect the Pope hmm. in a weird way, which, again, being the Catholic Church is kind of an extension of the Roman Empire. It makes sense. Uh, that being said, even though the kings were, quote unquote, elected, they were elected for life and they could veto anything from the Senate, anything from the plebeians. And they held absolute power. So uh, once the monarchy was overthrown, Rome was declared a republic, and the new system involved electing two consuls to share the powers of the king. So imagine if the U.S. had two presidents, and they were completely equal, and they not only held veto power over the Senate, but they also held veto power over each other. That sounds troublesome. They also had a term of but one year. And as another check on their power, they could be prosecuted for crimes upon their term expiring. So if you were corrupt, if you were arresting people, you know, illegitimately, if you were just being a psychotic tyrant, the minute you were uh, 
your term was up, you were probably going to be arrested. And likewise, your co-consul was probably going to be arrested for letting you get away with it. <laughs> that being said, this became an issue later on when the Senate would just basically try the consuls for made-up bullshit crimes because they didn't get along with them. Think of uh, Andrew Johnson's impeachment trial after Lincoln. Same concept. <clears throat> yes, I, I definitely am well-read on that subject. Good, you should be. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, so you had that system. Now, in emergencies, the Senate could also appoint a dictator. And this is where we get this term from. And it was a person who was a single consul and held basically all the powers of a king or what we now consider to be the powers of a dictator. And this was only for a six-month term. And and he had a very limited scope of powers in the grand scheme of things because he was issued a casa or a cause. Usually it was a military campaign. Usually there was some great enemy outside the gates. Um, you know, to date this a little bit for future people listening, uh, Russia's about to invade the Ukraine. So if the Ukraine was Rome right now, they would install a dictator and his cause would be to fight off the Russians. Mm. And if you ended, if you succeeded in your cause before six months was up, you were expected to resign and return to the two consul system and just go and live a happy life. Likewise, you didn't have a lot of say in things that didn't involve your cause if you were fighting a military campaign, yes, you were going to get money for it. Yes, you were going to be well supplied and you would have controls over logistics. But you're not really going to be able to handle the day-to-day -day budget and like how much money they're spending at the circuses. So you had an insane amount of power on the one hand and a very limited scope of power on the other. So not like a modern dictator at all. No. Uh, interestingly enough, the other check was there – uh, later on was a series of offices called the Tribunes of the Plebes or the Tribunes of the Plebeians. The Plebeians were the uh, normal people of Rome. They were above the slaves, but they were below the nobles and the senators. They were the commoners. And so they ha were able to elect tribunes. And the tribunes held a veto power of the people. So they could check both the Senate and the consuls as well. So it was a very interesting system. Now, unlike next week when we talk about the Roman Empire and we talk about the Pax Romana, the Roman Republic was pretty much constantly at war. Yeah. They fought fucking everyone. The Gauls, the Latin League, the Celts, the Etruscans, everybody fought against Rome. Up and down the Italian peninsula, all through uh, Gaul, which is now France, uh, Hispania, which is uh, the Spain and the Iberian Peninsula into Germania, all over the place. That being said, uh, it didn't always go well. And everybody talks about the sacks of Rome later on as the empire is falling, but the Gauls actually sacked Rome in 387 BCE. Wow. And that was a major fucking wake-up call for the empire. That was a major wake-up call, or for the Republic, rather. It was a major wake-up call for all the surrounding areas. A lot of the tribes united, and they, boom, they conquered the italian peninsula so the boot you know as a little kid you learn italy is a boot now the boot is strong and all under rome at the very least 
And now we come to probably one of the most the most famous part of the Republic and one of the most famous parts of Roman history to begin with, Carthage and the Punic Wars. I feel like I've heard of this. You probably have. Most <laughs> people have it. If you only know one thing about the Roman Republic, it's either the dictator or it's the Punic Wars. Carthage was without a doubt Rome's greatest enemy. And originally, they were trading partners and, to a lesser extent, even allies. Uh, they had sort of non-aggression pacts with one another. They weren't really, uh, you know, allies in the case of, yeah, if someone attacks you, I'll come defend you. But they both sort of like, hey, let's trade. We're both Mediterranean powers. Uh, and let's just not be openly be dicks to one another. Carthage is located in Africa. It was another major city-state. It was abnormally large, even by cities of the time. You have to understand, these great city-states, these great ancient metropolises were actually huge. It doesn't get reported enough how fucking big they were. But Carthage was big even by those standards. Carthage had between 700,000 and 800,000 people in it Whoa. at any given time. And so they were based in Africa, uh, looking up at the Mediterranean, and Rome, of course, is where Rome is, on the boot, and is surrounded by the Mediterranean. Hostilities and tensions grew over trading routes, uh, over who owned Sicily, over the, part, the port of Syracuse, and so this eventually led to conflicts. And this started in 246 BCE with the First Punic War. And you have fighting over Sardinia, you have fighting over Sicily and Syracuse, huge naval battles across the Mediterranean. And Rome attempts to invade Africa and conquer Carthage itself, and it fails. However, because of this, they have completely destroyed their navy, they have no boats, and they've wrecked their economy so much the Carthage can't pay their army, they can't pay the mercenaries they've hired, so they openly revolt, and finally Carthage says, all right, you guys win, let's just sue for peace. It's cool. So they negotiate a treaty, and much like at the end of World War I, Rome takes the treaty back to the Senate, and they go, nah, we don't like this, and both the Senate and the tribunes of the plebes rewrite it. More than doubling the amount of money Carthage had to pay as reparations, carving out huge chunks of territory, and just said, hey, what the fuck are you going to do about it? Don't worry about it. Sign this now. And go what, ahead. What is Carthage? Like, what has Carthage become? Like, Gaul is now France, right? Like, what is the Carthage re region today? <laughs> well, I was going to say, you, you, you'll find out what it became. It became a pile of salt. That's not entirely true. That's um, <laughs> partly Mish. No, it's Tunisia. Oh, all, okay. all joking aside, it's Tunisia, which uh, if Nuno was here, he would tell you that's Tatooine. <laughs> uh, but no, it, it was Tunisia, which is right on the, the northern coast of Africa. Uh, so they basically send the revised treaty back to them and said, you don't have a fucking army. What are you going to do about it? Sign it. And Carthage is humiliated and forced to sign it. And Rome goes one step further. Carthage's army is still in revolt. They, especially their guards and mercenaries that are stationed overseas from Carthage, uh, proper 
they're just like, we haven't been paid, we haven't been fed, fuck it. So the Rome just comes in and conquers the rest of Sardinia without firing a shot and says, ah, add this to the treaty now too. And that was the final slap in the face, that was the final insult. And that led to eternal hate in Carthage. It also made Rome get complacent. And so this all ended in 241. So 264 to 241 BCE was the first Punic War. Some 25 plus years later in 218, the second Punic War starts. Uh, the, the treaty that ended the first one had numerous no-go zones. Uh, Carthage couldn't go here. Carthage couldn't go there. Carthage couldn't do this. And in the meantime, they're rebuilding their army. They're rebuilding their economy. They have a fantastic general named Hannibal. And they conquer basically all of northern Africa. And then they go across the Strait of Gibraltar, and they start taking over the Iberian Peninsula. And there's a lot of silver mines and a lot of mineral mines. Uh, so the Roman Senate condemns all this expansion of Carthage and just demands that they're going to, that they pull out and they stop all this. Rome, meanwhile, is fighting in the north, in the Alps, uh, just above the peninsula. They're fighting a lot of little uh, civil disturbances, you know, what the, the Irish would call the Troubles, not quite civil wars, but they're trying to unite more tribes into Rome itself. So Hannibal used this all to advantage, his advantage, and they basically just have open war. And he goes up through Hispania, through Gaul, into Germany, into Switzerland, and he crosses the Alps with not only 100,000 troops, but 57 elephants. Yes, okay. I, I, was, I was thinking that's where this was going. All right, cool. <laughs> And this is seen as, like, the greatest fucking madman move in history. And it was pretty insane. But what doesn't get told is, on his way from Carthage to Rome, the long way around, he loses over half of the 100,000 troops, and he loses the vast majority of the elephants. Only, like, eight or ten elephants actually made it to Rome. It was still Jesus. enough that it fucking terrified the shit out of him. <laughs> but it was not like this massive army of elephants coming through the Alps, as it's often portrayed. However, he had the element of surprise, and Rome was being tied up in the north, and so they started winning a lot of battles. Meanwhile, Rome and the Senate sends uh, Scipio out into Gaul and Hispania and says, try to outflank them, try to cut them off. So now you have several fronts of the war. You have a massive naval battle going on uh, in the Mediterranean you have the war in the northern part of the Italian peninsula, and now you have war in Gaul, which is France, and then war in Hispania. And uh, overall, while Rome did very well in Gaul especially, overall they were losing the war by until about 205. So the first 12 years or so, they were really losing this war. And this really is the first quote-unquote world war, because this is the known world at the time to all of these participants. I mean, of course, there is the Chinese Empire, there is, um, you know, some Middle Eastern civilizations, Persia and whatnot. But this, to everyone involved, this was the entirety of the world as they knew it and everywhere they're fighting, on land and on sea. Wow. And... Uh, finally, about 205, Scipio came back and said, let me invade Africa. They're all in uh, Europe. Let me go back and invade Africa. We can finally conquer Carthage itself. And the Senate finally gives in and says, if you don't do this, we're going to lose. Don't fail. 
Well, he goes there and he wins and Hannibal gets outmaneuvered and routed and Carthage itself has to surrender. And they have to sign this humiliating treaty that doesn't let them have an army or a navy and they can only have so many weapons. It's a treaty of Versailles all over again. Yeah. And once again, they take the treaty back and the Romans go, ah, add another 10,000 talents to how much they have to pay us. Fuck them. And that was 201 BCE. It finally ended. And then last but not least, you have the Third Punic War. So for 60 years, you have this vassal state of Rome now that is Carthage. And the Romans are still bitter, like, that motherfucker came over here with elephants. And he did this, and he did that. And so finally they said, you know what? We're just going to go, and we're going to burn that fucking place to the ground. Jesus, Rome. <laughs> so they invade Carthage again on a bullshit false flag operation on the coast of Tunisia with some pirates, which we don't have the time to get into. <laughs> and they actually get beaten back because it was a heavy walled city. So they said, you know what? We don't care. We, we'll just wait it out. And they proceed to do a four year siege of a basically defenseless city, which they eventually breached the walls, sack the city, kill, rape, maim, murder, burn to the ground. Uh, over 50,000 Carthaginians were made slaves. Uh, the site was cursed by Roman priests, and then they famously salted the earth. Uh, they threw salt on the ground in different places. It's now become, in the, in the 1800s, it became a myth that they actually plowed salt into the earth so nothing would ever grow there, and that's why huge chunks of Tunisia are desert now. It wasn't that much of an, uh, they didn't go that far. They would have if they could have. <laughs> I would <laughs> imagine that they probably can get their hands on that much salt. No, it's salt, and you have to understand salt was worth an incredible amount of money at this time. So even, not even the Romans would have wasted it in such a way. But they did throw salt around in different places. They did ruin crops that way. It was just, uh, it just was just on a much smaller dick scale. Move. So they, um, <laughs> But yeah, that was, they hated it this entire time. It was just like, why are we letting this, this place still exist? Why are we, you know, doing this here to the extent that the famous politician, uh, Cato the Elder, would end any speech he gave on any subject in the Senate with this, the line, Carthago Dalana Est. Gentlemen, Carthage must be destroyed. <laughs> so he, he he would go up in, in the middle, you know, and talk about the economy for four hours. And he would just say, oh, yeah, by the way, let's burn fucking Carthage <laughs> to the ground. And then they finally did. That seems heavy handed, Mark. Uh, a little bit, but it, Italians hold grudges. I don't know if you know this or not. <laughs> Jesus. Remind me never to fuck you over in a video game. <laughs> So, no, the, the Punic War is interesting. The Punic Wars are interesting because you have great generals. You have Hannibal. You have Scipio. Uh, like I said, it's pretty much a, a world war, and it just keeps going. I mean, the first one began in 264, and then finally the sack of Carthage was 146. So 125 years, give or take, these two massive city-states were at war with each other. Is there ever any, like, studies or, or thoughts on, like, whether or not that third sacking was really needed, like, oh, it's widely accepted that it wasn't needed. Okay, <laughs> yeah, well, because that was like my question, right? Like, I mean, obviously, there's some fucking hate and grudges going on, but it was a long time. 
between those wars. Yeah, and basically, it you know, again, those the the sixty years or whatever, Carthage was a vassal state. Rome was establishing trade routes across the Mediterranean. They had moved into the mines of Hispania, the mineral rights. Carthage had no navy. They had very limited armies. A lot of the tribes uh, surrounding what is now modern day Tunisia, you know, living in the different parts of Africa and into the Middle East were at least economically allied with Rome. They were trading partners if they were not out and out allied with Rome. So even if Carthage wanted to start something, they had a lot of hostile forces right on their border before any legions could even get to them. Jesus. But then it was just like, you know what? They're a blight on this and we're still bitter about a lot of things. So <laughs> man, yeah, it's just that. So, all right. And so quickly we'll, we'll, we'll just gloss over the last hundred and some years of the, of the Republic. Uh, you had a number of uh, uprisings, civil wars between 135 and 62 BCE. Rome endured no less than five major civil wars. The Gracchi brothers, which just sounds like a mafia family, doesn't it? Really does. The, the Gracchi brothers, uh, they actually were men of the people, and they attempted to pass land reforms. AJ would love the Gracchi brothers because they wanted to limit how much land any one person in Rome could uh, own. I love that. That led to uh, civil conflict and eventually the Gracchi's murder. There was no less than three slave revolts, the largest being led, of course, by Spartacus. That was He was a real person. That was a real thing. His revolt had uh, upwards of 150,000 slaves marching against Rome. And that was really terrifying to people because especially if you were upper, upper middle class to middle class in Rome, you relied on slave labor. And the fact that they're going to slit your throat in the middle of the night was very terrifying. Mm. Uh, and then... Uh, you had the social war, which was very interesting. A lot of these tribes that had united in the Italian peninsula and the surrounding areas said, hey, we fought against Hannibal, too. We ran from those fucking elephants. Uh, we got our ass kicked just as much as you. We take all the losses and we don't get any of the financial gains. And this led to over 500,000 people uh, who were, quote unquote, non-Roman becoming citizens. And this is something we'll touch on in one of the later episodes, but it's a common misconception that the Romans were absolute conquerors, that they would just come in and you're all Rome now. No, they would conquer a land, but if you paid your taxes and if you didn't really cause a whole lot of hubbub, they let you keep your religions, they let you keep your culture, uh, you know, it was, a it was a melting pot. The Roman Empire especially was a melting pot when it was at its breath, uh, but at the same time, they, did, they were weren't crazy about extending citizenship because citizenship entailed you to a lot of rights under Roman law. Uh, but because of this, they had to grant citizenship to half a million additional people uh, who weren't quote unquote true Romans prior to this. So it was a major victory for the lower classes. Uh, finally, in 62 BCE, you had Pompey, who was a general, who was a consul. Uh, consuls and military leaders, they, they often rotated through. Great generals uh, eventually did a, one or more terms of consul and then rotated out later on. Uh, he had many of his treaties and agreements with uh, some territories in Asia Minor and even in Gaul just disregarded by the Senate. And a lot of this has to do with 
uh, Cato the Younger and some of the plots he was attempting to do, which we don't have fucking time to get into. <laughs> but uh, the Senate was really trying to put a check on Pompey and a check on the consulship in general and wrestle more power away. So they said, ah, yeah, you won all these battles. Ah, we're not going to ratify any of those treaties. And this led him to directly ally with Marcus Licinius Crassus and a man named Julius Caesar. And they formed the first triumvirate. And that's where we're going to stop this week. Uh, technically, the Roman Republic does not end here because there's the first triumvirate and there's the second triumvirate. And you still had power shared amongst people, in this case, three. That's what triumvirate means, instead of two with a consul. But it is uh, a very different system of government. So we're going to talk about the two triumvirates next week when we talk about the empire. I love that. You got all that? Uh, I, I Don't quiz me. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So my section here is I decided that this week I'm going to cover uh, the gods uh, because, you know, it's to me one of the more interesting parts of Roman history uh, is the mythology. Um, a lot of the Roman gods were plucked straight out of the Greek gods, which I found really interesting as I was going through this. Uh, we've named a lot of fucking planets and moons after the Roman gods, which mm. really makes me think that the Greeks got, you know, the shit end of the stick here. But, you know, whatever. Um, so at the uh, head of the Patreon, we have... Um, Patreon. Pantheon. There we go. <laughs> hey, that's a good idea, though. Maybe we'll start a Patreon. <laughs> the first thing will be me going on for 14 hours in depth about Hannibal's tactics in the Alps. Yeah. Boner. Donor only episodes, not boner. Anywho. So, uh, the, the head of the Pantheon uh, were Jupiter and Juno, uh, which were basically Zeus and Hera. Uh, uh, respectively. Uh, Jupiter was the king of the gods, god of thunder and lightning. He was the patron god of Rome. Uh, Juno was uh, J Jupiter's wife, queen of the gods, considered the protector of Rome proper. Uh, then we have some children. We've got uh, Mars, which is basically the Roman version of Ares, the god of war. Um, and, uh, you know, their son. Uh, Mercury was the equivalent of Hermes, who was the god of trade, also the messenger. Uh, Neptune uh, is the Greek god of the sea, Poseidon, basically, um, and brother to Jupiter. Uh, he was also the patron of horses, you know, wielded a trident, basically all the same shit. Uh, Venus was Aphrodite, god of love and beauty. Uh, for some reason, Apollo didn't get his own name. Uh, no, Apollo's Apollo. <laughs> Apollo's Apollo is Apollo. Uh, he's the god of music, poetry, and archery. Uh, his twin sister is Diana, uh, which was taken from the Greek god of Artemis, the goddess of the hunt, archery, and animals. Then we have uh, Minerva, which uh, I, I would arguably say one of the more popular goddesses in the pantheon. Uh, comes from the Greek god Athena, the goddess of wisdom. Uh, we also got uh, Ceres, which was the Roman equivalent of the Greek goddess Demeter. Uh, she was the goddess of agriculture and the seasons. Uh, interestingly enough, fun fact, uh, the name Ceres is where we get the name for cereal. Well, yeah, it's grain. I love it. It's so good. 
we also get uh, Vulcan, uh, which is the Greek god Hephaestus. He's the blacksmith for the rest of the god. The god's the god of fire. Uh, it's where we get the word volcano, which will definitely come up when we talk about Pompeii. Um, then we have Bacchus, uh, who comes from the Greek god Dionysus, the god of wine and theater. Uh, he was basically the, uh, youngest of the major gods, the only one born to a mortal. Uh, and then we have, uh, my personal favorite Faunus, uh, who is associated with the Greek god Pan, uh, Faunus was a, a fawn, half goat, half human, the nature god of fertility and revelry. His Greek p- counterpart is where we get the origin of the word pandemonium, which is one of my favorite facts ever. Uh, interestingly enough, Faunus was uh, thought to be the father of uh, King Latinus, uh, which I don't even know if he... I, I didn't hear him mentioned today, so maybe he'll come up later. Um and then we have Pluto, which Mark and I debated for like five minutes before the beginning of this episode. Um, and I, we wanted to include him, but Pluto is weirdly like a combination of Hades and Thanatos in, from Greek culture. Uh, he's basically the personification of death, and he's closer to Thanatos than he is Hades. Um, but, you know, Pluto. We can't forget Pluto, right? Well, no, and, you know, I'm... I'm not saying that it's not wise to anger the one of many deities of a, a polytheistic religion from a civilization that has ceased to exist something you know like 1400 years ago. Uh, but all I'm saying is scientists can't decide whether or not Pluto's a planet, and now we just have all this. Yeah, we have literally a- the last five years. <laughs> yeah. Don't piss off the god of death. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, uh, on this podcast, we stand the planet Pluto. Um, we, Fuck yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. Uh, we, we believe in you, Pluto. Keep going. Uh, but I also wanted to... I, I'm going to be doing a lot more of this, but I wanted to bring in some literary references as well as some pop culture ways to experience the Greco-Roman pantheon. Um now, I, I list Homer's uh, Iliad and Odyssey mostly because uh, they are the lead-up to Virgil's Aeneid. Yep, um, they're the prequel. Yeah, so uh, I, you know, specifically I am recommending Virgil's Aeneid. It tells the legendary story of Aeneas, a Trojan who f- fled the fall of Troy, traveled to Italy where he became the ancestor of the Romans. Uh, so if you want to know why the fuck there was a war, a war in Troy, uh, maybe pick up a copy of the Iliad. Um, and the Odyssey is always a, a good romp where you get to see a fair amount of the gods. And a lot of places now, uh, especially when it comes to ebooks and things with technology, you can buy uh, the Aeneid in both languages. You could have it in uh, Latin and then it's annotated in English so you can read it either way and you know get the feel of the original text and then when you start to go bug-eyed looking for the verb you could read it in English yeah or just read it in English because you didn't take four years of fucking Latin well no a lot of the annotated ones aren't aren't super hard um, and I mean the as it goes the idea it is a lot easier than say you know reading fucking Cato or 
you know, some of the other fucking later ones. Uh, although it's not as easy as Caesar's Gallic Wars, which we'll get into, but that's n- nevertheless. Yeah, I'm definitely <sighs> recommending things that would be considered like you know, fiction, fantasy, mythology things. Uh, Mark's going to get you covered with all of those, you know, volume 20 of the history of Rome shit. Um, but then in terms of modern day pop culture, I'm going to give you some recommendations here. Uh, there is a book series called the Iron Druid Chronicles by Kevin Hearn. Uh, it's a really great nine book series, tons of side story novellas and, and short stories. Uh, but there is a book that is set on Olympus and they encounter both the Roman and the Greek, uh, sides of the Pantheon. And it's, it's, uh, not historically or mythologically accurate, but it kind of gives you a, uh, a, a good sense of how to keep track of their names together, which was really cool. Uh, the God of War video game series, uh, just in general, if you are an action, uh, fighter type, uh, video game series, fan uh definitely check out the series the first three plus a bunch of side games in the series are set in ancient greece and you get to basically rip apart most of the greek pantheon which is pretty cool um you know i never played any of those games i have a really hard time going back now that i've played the absolutely fantastic one that came out on ps4 I have never played any of them. Not not that I have anything against them, or, or you know, I, I'm indifferent to them at best. But I just I've never never picked any of them up. Yeah, it, they're interesting. Uh, there is a fairly modern roguelike game. I think it came out two years ago called Hades. Uh, definitely recommend trying it. Uh, you get to to meet various uh, Greek gods. You get to see a, a lot of what would have been uh, Greek Hades and. You get a flavor for what the Roman gods would have been as well. Uh, And there's an absolutely fantastic song by the band Bastille uh, called Pompeii that I definitely recommend people check out. Uh, There's going to be a lot more pop culture next week, and uh, I'm going to focus on some Roman heroes next week as well. uh, Cool. You're going to talk about Caligula? uh, Heroes, Mark. Heroes. <laughs> I'm not going to talk about tyrants or despots or dictators like Caesar. Oh, uh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, you'll, you'll get to cheer next week when we talk about his assassination by that traitor. I will. Still my least <sighs> favorite work of William Shakespeare. But, Mark, take us out. Really? Yeah, I don't oh. love it. Well, you'll have it. I mean, it's not my favorite, believe it or not, of Shakespeare, but... I don't that is it. surprising. Now, do you know what my favorite Shakespearean play is? The Tempest. You want to take a guess? No, no I, I bet like, you it's uh, one of the fucking histories, isn't it? N- no, no, no. I'll give you. It's not the Tempest. I'll give you one other guess. Uh, Midsummer Night. Now, Twelfth Night. Oh, see, I've never experienced Twelfth Night. Holly says it's very good, but my favorite. Oh, is you, Midsummer. you would love Twelfth Night because it's just you. You would love it. I'll have to I'll have to loan it to you. I have you have the complete work Shakespeare read twelfth night. Uh, I think we have like four copies. I'm sitting in the library right now. I should be able to find it. Well pull it off the fucking shelf and read twelfth night. It's not super long. All right. That's that for part one. Part two will be next week. We probably could fit a third part in and then we'll end the season on whatever the fuck we end the season on because we're going to need a break. <laughs> yeah. Uh can you believe that? It's already episode twelve is done and complete. Uh so season four is wrapping up, but we want to thank you all for listening. The five of you that are still with us, 
uh, you know, between the, the NFL episode last week and now this episode this week and the following episode next week. So thank you all. Uh, listen to us on your favorite podcast apps, Google Podcast, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, Podcast Addict. There's a million of them. Go on our Facebook page. Click on the banner. We have little badges for pretty much everyone. Uh, if you're on mobile on our Facebook page, Facebook now uploads our episodes directly. It's mobile only for now on. And the notifications, like it seems like it uploads on time, but the notifications come at all hours of the day. And I haven't quite figured out why yet. They're yeah. still working the bugs out of it. The Zucker bottle figure that out. <laughs> uh, we release every Friday, eight o'clock, uh, assuming one of us isn't, you know, internetless or sick. Uh, but otherwise, we're we're pretty good about that. So give us a like, give us a follow, star us, uh, give us a rating, leave us a comment. We are the Wit and Whiskey Cast on Facebook, on Instagram, mm. and on Gmail, and on SoundCloud. Although there's nothing on SoundCloud, there's no H in Wit, but there is an E in Whiskey. Unlike those goofy Canadian awards we talked about earlier. So proud. So, and, and I will it, say, yeah, I it, get it. if you do hate our podcast, uh, the name of our podcast is the Joe Rogan Experience. Oh, come on now. <laughs> Oh, see, I'm a fan. I, I am a news radio guy, so I will always like Joe Rogan for news radio. So I don't condone the Joe Rogan bashing. Uh, if you if you want to bomb, uh, if you want to bomb a podcast, I don't know. Uh, uh, I'm sure there's probably some, you know, Greek history podcast. we can harass. <laughs> uh, But listen to the history of Rome. Anyway, uh, next week we're going to do Ancient Roman Whiskey Part 2. We're going to talk about the Empire. Big shout-out to Nuno Henry Silva for our intro music and our outro music. We love him. We're going to send you to his SoundCloud, buy his book, do all the rest of it. That's fucking enough. Are we over an hour yet? I think we are. I think we're well over an hour, buddy. So, hey, until next week, salute. Cheers. Cheers.